Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So... I'm going to get straight into it. You know, normally I ask people where they live and what they're doing, but I'm going to get into this. What does a certified forensic interviewer do? And I saw that I said, what is that even a thing? Well, thank you very much for asking. And I can confirm that, yes, indeed, it is a thing. So the, the certified forensic interviewer is the highest available designation of expertise for professional investigative interviewers. So for the, maybe the most common example I can use would be an investigator achieving his or her CFI would be like an accountant achieving his or her CPA. So it's not necessarily a job in and of itself. It's a designation of expertise in a field that should prepare somebody to execute, make sure I say this in the right way, morally, legally, and ethically successful interviews in any context throughout their career. So give me an example of where you would apply these skills. Certainly. So I guess we'll we'll go several directions with that. The first is what the designation was initially designed for. Yeah. So the, the group that now runs the International Association of Interviewers, they were previously referred to as the Center for Interviewing Standards and Assessment. When they got together to create the Certified Forensic Interviewer Program exam designation and so forth, really what they saw was a need for standards. Yeah. That's in the field of investigative interviewing, there were different schools of thought and different practices in different areas. And of course, some people pieces overlapped, but there really wasn't an overarching standard that we could take into a court of law or we could take into mediation or we could take to uh, a human resources department or executive that had concerns and say, here is our level of expertise. Here is our education. Here are the standards that we hold ourselves to. And here are the techniques that we use that fit underneath these standards. So that really, not trying to speak for that group, but that was really the the mindset and the goals that they brought into creating it. So the skills that one should possess after earning the designation and maintaining the continuing education are the skills initially designed to connect with victims, witnesses, and suspects in a variety of contexts and use nearly entirely rapport-based techniques in order to help them to save face and make their own decision to commit to sharing the truth about whatever has been done to them, about whatever they witnessed, about whatever they've done or whatever they've known. So that's probably a fair way to summarize it for investigations. Where I spend most of my time, selfishly and biasedly, of course, applying nearly the identical skill set is in the business world. Yes. As believe it or not, the same two skills that the very best leaders and the very best interrogators capitalize on are identical. You know, it's vision and influence yeah. in both circumstances. And the one that tends to surprise people the most, I believe, is that the cognitive process that will lead an interrogation suspect to truthfully committing to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive process that leads customers to commit to saying I'll buy it and employees to commit to saying I'll do it. 
interview and interrogation has always been always might be a, a broad brush, but has often been kind of the the stepbrother nobody really talks to yes. over in the corner. So really for me, I have been fascinated and thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to bring these skills, perspectives, and techniques from the certified forensic interviewer program and our ethos and our resources into the business world, integrate it with business communication, best practices and research in order to create what I call the discipline listening method in order to help executives specifically interact with people in a way where they can unlock the hidden value that exists in so many of our conversations. Okay, there's a lot of very interesting things. Yeah, I'm gonna unpack this so the audience follows it, but very fascinating. So first Thank one you. is that I'm gonna use an analogy of a chartered accountant. Sure. Same way a CPA goes into a boardroom and does a set of analyses and gives the board confidence of the analysis because they are following a set of standardized processes. Using the same analogy, a forensic interviewer follows a set of standardized processes that gives, for example, a judge confidence in terms of what was disclosed. Is that a good way of thinking about that? It is, yes. On the interviewer side, there are the number is increasing. So don't hold me to this 100%. Yeah. But right now, I believe there are seven or eight non confrontational approaches that are generated from both sides of the Atlantic Ocean that are often used in many of these investigations. And so, with this, and I'm not a CPA, and I don't want yeah. anyone to think that I'm pretending yeah. to be one. Yeah. Well, a CPA may have a more rigid set of rules and processes. Yeah. Part of being a certified forensic interviewer is choosing the right tool for the right job based on the context and who we're talking right. to and the goals and, and the importance of always prioritizing the truth and relationships over everything else. It's a lot like the way a psychiatrist would have a bag of tools, but he or she is trained to use them in a way that is standardized. Yes. As opposed to someone just reading a book on psychiatry and deciding to give advice over a podcast, which would be very yeah. different, right? <laughs> that, that, that's okay, a so very this good is very point. interesting. You said that the process to get someone to admit they did something is the same as the process to get a customer to commit to something or an employee to commit to something. What is that process? So when we think about potentially contentious conversations, and the word potential there is key, because yes. I'm certainly not implying that every interview or every negotiation or every coaching conversation is contentious, that I think we all know that that's not the case. However, in many of these, all the flammable material is present. All it takes is an inadvertent spark to set yes. the conversation alight. So when we look at that, there are seven phases that we all transition through as we engage in those conversations. And if we just kind of focus on our audience for a moment, oftentimes we might feel like the conversation starts when we say it does, either when we set the meeting or yes. when they show up at our offense or the conference room. But in reality, the first stage of the conversation is everything that has happened in our audience's lives prior to engaging with us. Yes. So they're literally building mental models for how they expect people in leadership roles to treat them. And unfortunately, more often than not, those can be negative mental models. Yes. Then they often meet us before we even meet them. So they might hear rumors about us, or maybe they see yes. us in a video or they see us address the organization. And now they're already making determinations about us without ever having met us. And then unfortunately, the first time we really do meet 
it just might be in passing. So for us as executives, senior leaders, we see people all the time. That's another person in the organization. But what senior leaders often don't realize is it's a bit like being a celebrity within your organization. You're always on stage. People always are watching and they're always listening. So long before the meeting is ever set, people are likely anticipating how they are going to be treated when they have to have conversations with us. There's one more additional onset that's probably worth mentioning as well. If somebody says or does something that they know could lead to an uncomfortable conversation, from the moment that happens, and maybe even the moment they started considering saying or doing it, if they thought it through, they've already put thought into how they're going to handle the ensuing conversation. What am I going to say? What am I not going to say and why? So as leaders, especially in our most valuable interactions, it's important that we don't discount that. That's just the first. The second phase is the introduction. And there are three research studies unrelated from three different universities that say we are capable of judging people's intelligence, trustworthiness, and filing them within our previously existing mental models as fast as 100 to 500 milliseconds. So literally that introduction can set the tone for the entire conversation and can either enforce these potential negative expectations that someone brings in, or, and I mean this in a good way, can violate those negative expectations and cause people to think, wait a minute, Michael's being nicer to me right now than I thought he would be. What's going on here? And it literally recalibrates how they can engage with us. From there, when people start to listen, oftentimes it's easy for leaders to fall into the entitlement trap and feel that people are listening to us because they're truly intent on what we have to say and they want to hear us and they're ready to give us all the information that we feel we're entitled to. But in reality, when people start listening, and this would be the third phase, they're typically trying to figure out what is this conversation about, where is it going, and how does it impact the goals or fears that I have? Then once they feel like they've solved that riddle, they transition into that internal dialogue, self-talk, self-negotiation stage. And at that point, if we pick up on nonverbal behavior that indicates to us they're not listening, we may be offended by that. When in reality, they feel like, to, to go back to your analogy of the, the person who read a psychology book, they feel like they've now diagnosed the situation. And based on their diagnosis, they're now going to negotiate within themselves. What should I say? What should I do? What should I offer? What should I accept? What should I withhold based on what circumstances? Once they navigate that, now they're typically more willing to join the conversation because they have a little bit of a plan. Now that they've joined the conversation doesn't mean they're going to stay. There's going to be multiple opportunities for them to choose to participate or disengage. And disengage doesn't mean walking out or hanging up the phone. It could mean transitioning to one word answers or defensive tactics or misleading tactics, aggressive tactics, any number of things. And then likely the phase that gets overlooked the most besides the pre-conversation is the post-conversation follow-up. There's a big difference generally. Well, I guess I'll say it this way. In order for somebody to feel like they can trust their counterparts, especially if it's in a superior subordinate situation, there has to be tangible evidence there that says I can trust this person. So all of these active listening behaviors that we've all been taught, and they're great, we should do them. Do not prove to somebody that we listened. 
They give the impression that we are listening. However, if we don't follow up after the conversation and make good on a commitment mm-hmm. or check on them or add additional resources or even work in a few things that they said in a previous conversation into the next conversation, we've given them no tangible evidence that we've listened, which can be detrimental further down the road for our relationship. So whether we are conducting an investigative interview, whether we are interviewing a candidate for a position at any level of the organization, whether we are negotiating, working on a business deal, coaching somebody within our organization or or any of the variation of these conversations, there's a reasonable likelihood that the people we're communicating with are riding that roller coaster. Yeah. And those middle steps, three through six, are rinse and repeat. Those could They could cycle through those stages any number of times during the conversation. So being able to account and address for that begins to unlock a series of new opportunities for senior leaders. That's quite interesting because whenever we talk about soft skills, we kind of group it into many different things. And we know that we need to communicate in a certain way gain trust and so on. But I think for many people, they don't invest enough in learning the right technique. So they get very weak results. Or in many cases, they don't even understand why they're failing to influence. They believe I have a logical argument. I'm a smart person. Most of our audience went to Harvard or some fancy school like that. And they're very accomplished. They've worked very hard. They know how to build financial models, solve complicated problems. But then when they get to a certain age, that ability to influence becomes a material gap. So now, what advice do you have for someone who has built their career on technical skills and is now trying to weave in, which is probably one of the most important skills in the world, the ability to have a conversation, you call it interviewing, a conversation to influence someone. How do they go about learning those things? Great question. And the first key was layered within your setup for that question. If I heard you correctly, and if I summarize you incorrectly, please adjust me. Um, But what I essentially heard was, people are very logical thinkers, they're great at solving problems and and sometimes struggle on the soft skill side. Oftentimes, one of the biggest mistakes we see, especially at the CEO level, the senior leadership level, is we find very smart, very successful, very educated people driving themselves and those around them crazy because they're consistently trying to find rational solutions to emotional problems. Everything they've been taught has been problem solving, has been, now I certainly don't have this education, so if I'm making incorrect assumptions, please correct me, but it's formulaic, it's spreadsheets, it's it's the rational model of decision-making, risk versus reward. So factor in, somebody who has been operationally conditioned to solve problems that way and now pour on the time restrictions and the time pressure that everybody feels. Well, time is the enemy of empathy. So now if we feel like we're under pressure to have a problem solved or get an answer or end a conversation within a certain time frame, within a certain amount of minutes, we've now literally prioritized, say, a 15-minute conversation over learning alternatives, establishing relationships and creating the impact necessary. And that might take 20 minutes instead of 15. We've predetermined the amount of time we're going to allocate to something before we've even arrived and determined the time we need. Yes. That's a common problem. 
it's, it's what, for most people, they look at their calendars like an obstacle course. It's it's it completely understandable. You know, once we fo- once we prioritize time over quality or time over empathy, quality and empathy are going to suffer. There's no doubt about it. It, it honestly just recently happened with my wife and I. I was she was going to pick up our son at preschool. Her schedule changed. No problem. I'll go do it. So I'm literally in my mind thinking I've got five minutes to leave the house and get in my truck to log into my next call so I can take the call while I'm going to get my son. And I'm trying to beat this five minute clock in my head and standing at the pantry in the kitchen, getting snacks for my son for the ride home. My wife was talking to me and I probably heard one out of every five words she was saying. And when she was done, I looked at her and said, sure, no problem. And she literally looked at me and said, you didn't hear what I said, did you? (laughs) No, I didn't. And if you could correct me in about one minute and 30 seconds, I'd really appreciate it. So that's literally an embarrassing moment that happened in my personal life that personifies what we're talking about. So when we have people who are technical experts, when we have people who are in superior roles, when we have people who do face time constraints, and that's just a a, a reality that they live and work in, a big part of it is to the extent that's possible, be patient and let the conversation come to you. When we're listening, we're learning. If we're not learning, we're not listening. And the longer we give people an opportunity to communicate with us, the more intelligence we have to, we have the opportunity to acquire. So that takes a a bit of a mindset shift within that patience and letting the conversation come to us. Often we also have to maintain that learning mentality by focusing on what value do we think we can get out of this conversation as opposed to the opportunity cost of this conversation. What else is it keeping me from doing? And then really on the technical expert side, what we find across the board when we deal with or we'll partner with organizations and leaders who are technical experts is that being a technical expert, unfortunately, puts us in a prime position to communicate with people in a way that causes our audiences to feel embarrassed. Embarrassment is the number one fear that will stop most people from doing most things. So technical experts and I, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. So for all the technical experts that are listening and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't do that. You might be right. But for technical experts, it's easier for them to appear to be talking fast, rushing through a piece of a conversation that makes total sense to them at their level of expertise, but does not make nearly as much sense for the audience that they're speaking with. So now the audience that they're speaking with may feel like they're getting rushed past. So that it could be a feeling of, this might not be the best word, but disrespect or or lack of connection. If they feel like they have a question, it can now literally be embarrassing to raise your hand and say, excuse me, I actually have a question about that. Some people have no problem doing that. Lots of people will have an issue because they don't want to be perceived as lacking intelligence or lacking understanding or lacking focus. So they're better off just being quiet and hoping they can solve this riddle later than asking a question now. And with that, technical experts are more likely to use jargon or phrases that they're comfortable with. That's very common in consulting. Yeah. And that's that's an easy way to put our audience off because now we're literally talking in a language that they don't understand again, can create feelings of disconnect, embarrassment, can damage rapport, these types of things. And all too often, and I'll pause after this, the trap that we see technical experts falling into 
is they lead with their expertise instead of leading to their expertise. So it's easy for somebody who's an expert on any topic to feel like, all right, I can save us time. Yes. If I just lead with my technical expertise, then I will have credibility. They will see how smart I am. They'll know everything they need to know. And we can turn a 15-minute conversation into a four-minute conversation. Once again, prioritizing time over value, time over empathy. So when they lead off with their technical expertise and it creates this uncertainty or this discomfort in their audience, their audience reacts accordingly. And now it ends up frustrating the technical expert, taking more time and damaging rapport to a degree. And I'm certainly not trying to paint in a broad brush saying this always happens, but these are the most common pitfalls that we see technical experts falling into time and time and time again. Well, I work with many technical experts and I can tell you that is very common, maybe with 95% of them. They believe that they're a technical expert because they're the most rational person in the room and that rationality gives them permission to control things. But more importantly, that rationality means that whatever they decide must be right. And they don't see anything else. One of the things I do with all clients I deal with is whenever I'm talking to them, or advising them, I always think about, okay, what should you do that is rationally correct? Two, when you do what is rationally correct, how is it going to make people feel emotionally? And the third thing I look at is that what is it going to do to their careers? That's politics. Because I remember once in a consulting engagement, at that stage, I was a principal. I was not a senior partner. And I remember there was a partner presenting a banking strategy to the executive committee and talking about how the wealth management division is doing really badly. And right there is the head of the wealth management division. And I'm thinking to myself, but why would you use language like that? How does this person feel? And second, their career is on the line. Is this the best forum to be discussing that division's performance using that language? So coming back to the point you made in a kind of a circular way is that people who follow the rational logic, the so-called experts, to some degree, they're driven by a need for significance. They want to get that respect of being an expert. And it's almost as if they've already predetermined what the right answer is. So they don't need to engage and build a coalition. And because they don't feel the need to engage, they don't even try to do it. And I do believe it's alienating because when you read newspapers, you have this term elitist. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what they're referring to. People who are well-educated, who've predetermined the answer and they're not willing to talk to anyone about it. So how do you overcome that? Because it's a mindset shift. This is not a technical shift. It it has to be an intentional mindset shift. And it's something that like any, if somebody plays tennis or plays golf, it's something that has to be practiced and conditioned over a period of time until it literally becomes muscle memory. You said several things there that I find extremely valuable. And one is you mentioned it again, if I don't summarize it word for word, excuse me, but that need for the respect for being that technical expert. Perhaps the most dangerous gremlin that lives in our brains is the need to have our self-image affirmed consistently. And that need for affirmation escalates depending on who is in our audience. 
So if we have somebody who is a technical expert and they're in a superior role and they feel like they need their superior role affirmed, then they're likely going to communicate that that way because they will feel better about themselves. And now we're literally prioritizing how we feel over how the group perceives the conversation. The flip side can be true as well. And sometimes this can be more dangerous. And honestly, early in my career, I will yes. freely admit to falling prey to this next one, being in a subordinate position, yes. yet being a technical expert and feeling like I'm not getting the respect I deserve. So now I'm going to come out guns blazing with my expertise in order to earn the respect I feel like I deserve from my superiors while only doing far more damage along the way. So it starts with, and again, I don't want to play armchair psychologist to get yes. back to your, your, your analogy from earlier today, but part of it starts with understanding where and how do we feel affirmed or validated or respected? And then changing our, changing our level of awareness where we can begin to be comfortable in our own skin, comfortable with our own expertise to embrace this learning mentality as opposed to a validation mentality when we go into these conversations. Yes. When we teach discipline listening, one of the things that we stress out of the gate is it is our responsibility to own how our audience experiences our entire interaction. We know that there's competing realities in any conversation, how I see things, how you see things, maybe the independent truth in the middle. So for us to say that somebody reacted in a way that we didn't intend or somebody didn't get the right impression or somebody's mm -hmm. upset about something they shouldn't be, maybe there was nothing we could have done about that. Maybe. The vast majority of time, if we had increased our situational awareness, if we had taken an, an audience-focused approach, if we had really thought through the goals we were trying to achieve, not just the short-term in this conversation, but long-term down the road, now we really have the ability to make that conscious shift in order to engage with people that are more likely to create the emotional responses we're looking for and less likely to create these unhealthy emotional responses. And I do have a couple preparation questions that I like to work through with people in order to help with that. But before I get into those, I certainly don't want to steamroll the conversation. I'm happy to pause here for any additional thoughts or questions. Yes, we definitely want to get into those questions. But I want to talk about, um, I want to build on some of the very valuable things you said so we can unpack it for the audience and get them to have this mindset shift. In my previous role, I used to be a management consulting partner. And the firm used to use me as a troubleshooter. So that if there was a problem with a client somewhere in the world, they'd send me in and say, you know, you got to fix this. And the word fix means different things to different people. Because for many people, fix means make it go away. They would say, what do I need to do to minimize the damage? What do I need to do to minimize the write-off? What do I need to do to minimize the amount of additional work we need to give this client to make them be quiet? I followed a different approach where I said that what if the relationship is so bad, it can only get better. So what do I do to fix it? Now, the question that I'm coming to in an indirect way is that the skills you teach are very powerful. It's very obvious to anyone in business, anywhere in the world. But do you not feel that too often people use these skills to listen, to manipulate the person, as opposed to saying, how can I listen to this person really understand what they're saying. And even if it means completely changing what I'm doing because they have a better way. Because a lot of people are only 
in their head about what they want without thinking about maybe this person is right, maybe they can do something better. So what advice do you have for people to make that shift? That's a, or I said, unfortunate yet great points that you just made. So I'll start with that and then work towards a suggestion. Yes, it, it would be, I don't know if ignorant or foolish would be the right word for me to ignore the fact that there are people out there who could or already to some degree, maybe using these techniques in order to manipulate people in order to get the outcome that they wanted. And manipulation is not a negative word. I mean, it's not. In business, you're always having a conversation to, to move people in the direction you want. It's not negative. It's just the word I used. I, I agree. And manipulate is neutral. The intentions and goals associated exactly. with the manipulation can make it ethical or unethical. So I, I would agree entirely. And there are already a, a plethora of persuasion and influence related resources out there that can provide people with these tools. And, and some of them are pretty commonly known already in the business, in the business world. So really from a suggestion standpoint, you know, if somebody is entirely self-centered, and they have absolutely no interest in changing or developing or living their lives any other way, then there may only be so much of an impact that we can have with an individual like that, speaking pragmatically. For what I would love to believe is the majority of CEOs, senior leaders, top executives who legitimately care about their organization, legitimately care about the people under their charge, legitimately care about the impact that their company has in the world, then to some of the points you made earlier, they likely have no idea the limitations they're creating or the potential adverse impact they're having on people with their communications because they've been wildly successful and it's all they know. So in those opportunities, that's where we have the chance to really connect with people and start working on what we like to call the strategic and ethical applications of these skills. So we are focusing on the greater good. We are focusing on the impact that we're having on our audiences, the resulting relationships, the unexpected value that we're creating, little things, how we change, how we ask questions, how we interact with people. You know, literally never walking past somebody without saying hello. It doesn't matter if someone is the CEO of a Fortune 5 company and they're walking past the custodian, smile and say hello. Things like if, if we give someone directions, instead of saying, do you have any questions? Say, what questions did I create? Because if we say, do you have any questions? The implied expected answer is no. And somebody may not want to be embarrassed by asking yeah. a question. Yet if we say, what questions did I create? Now the onus is on us. We didn't do a good enough job. Therefore, you must have a question. So some of these little shifts we can make in our mindset and how we communicate is key. And, and I'll pause after this thought. One of the things that we really try to impress upon the people we work with is that, especially now, so much time and money and energy is spent on brand, personal and organizational brand perception. Yes. Our brand perception as leaders hinges nearly entirely on our perception as listeners. Yes, that makes sense. Everything you said is very true. Is it correct to summarize that for the audience listening to say that, and I may be wrong here, but adopt a mindset of appreciation versus expectation? Yes. That a good way of pulling it all together? Yes, I think that's a great way. Other terms that we like to use is inclusive versus exclusive. Instead of listening to prove somebody else wrong, what can we listen to learn 
from them. Um, you know, value, or I guess I'm going to use the same word twice in the same sentence because I was halfway home. I apologize. Um, prioritizing value over time yes. in any conversation. Some of the things we've already touched on. But yes, it has to be an intentional mind shift like anything else in life. It's not just a mind shift of the leader. It has to be the mind shift of the organization. Because I've seen so many companies make bad decisions in meetings which I've sat in because they've chosen some arbitrary timeline of six months to do something. Mm -hmm. When someone has a better idea, but it's going to take them 12 months to do it. Yes. But everyone gets upset because we've agreed to this. We've worked on this. We're going to be ready to go in six months. So we don't want to listen to your idea. You talk about value over time. And that's true. You got to figure out how do we create the most value, even if it disrupts our plans for the world. And the mm -hmm. other thing you said, which is very true, is that we all have a mental model of who we are. You know, I call it identity, mental model, mm -hmm. same thing. The challenge is that if you don't take the time to understand your identity and how it's allowed you to interact with the world, because most people don't know what their primary drivers are. What are they, what's their primary need in the world? Are they looking for certainty, significance, and so on? And unless you understand that, you can't really manage yourself. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. And your comment about um, sticking to bad decisions because of some arbitrary factor is far more common, I believe, than people yes. realize. I, one client about two years ago I was working with, they had a six-figure discrepancy with one of their partners that had stalled. And so the, they brought me in to try to rip this thing loose and, and get it yes. taken care of. And literally the problem they brought me in to solve was getting their business partner to come into their office. And inside I'm thinking, okay, keep a straight face and listen to this whole thing before yeah. I start talking. But literally they had a problem and they told their business partner, you have to come to our office so we can figure out how we're going to get this resolved. And the, their partner stopped communicating with them and yeah. refused to come to their office. And we really blame them. Yes. And now to your point, my client is blaming the other person for not coming. And they're so fixated to like, literally, Mike, what do we need to say to this person to get them to come to our office? And after I listened to them, I finally just responded with, why is it so important that they come to your office? Because our CEO has to be at the meeting. Does your CEO own a vehicle? <laughs> like, and you know they make big wide eyes at me. And I, I literally said, what is more important? Resolving a six figure issue or having the conversation at your office? Well, we thought we would have it here. And then we get into this, like calling somebody to the principal's office or it's creating a parent-child relationship. And long, very long story short, we got three options. We can go meet them at a neutral site, maybe take them out to a meal or go to their office. What's more important? Having the conversation here. And my client literally said to me, they caused a six-figure problem and you want me to buy them lunch. If it gets you several hundred thousand dollars back, I would think that's a wise investment. And the story is a good story because if you, if, if you break into it, and I may be wrong here, but it was probably some underling who made the decision on behalf of the CEO to please the CEO, but wasn't thinking about the broader value mm -hmm. at play here. Uh, it was, you're correct. Um, the concept of situational awareness 
is something that is taught to people in who serve in public safety roles because they often put their physical safety in jeopardy on a routine basis. Yes. My suspicion from my perception, what I've seen, is that the skill of developing situational awareness is woefully neglected in the business education process. So people aren't necessarily taught to, to look at whatever problem they're trying to solve through a longer term strategic lens and say, okay, what's the real long-term impact, the next series of ripple effects I'm trying to create. With that in mind, what are what's all the intelligence I have in front of me, either opportunities or, or barriers or obstacles that I need to consider with those. Now, what are my best, maybe two or three alternatives? Okay, and after considering those alternatives, what do I think is, is the best one to pursue? I mean, game theory is taught of quite frequently, but again, yeah. game theory tends to be super rational, super formulaic, whereas situational awareness the skill of situational awareness, especially in a business context, can start helping to can start to account for some of the more emotional, unpredictable, interpersonal, if this then that type reactions that a game theory approach may not always uncover. This is very interesting. I completely agree with you. And I like the word situational awareness because it talks about what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. By emotional intelligence, ask you to look inside. I was dealing with a client once, and this is actually going to be on the show, whereby she was telling me how do they deal with a distributor that's not loyal. And we're very emotional about this. This is such a disloyal distributor. We don't want to work with them. We're going to replace them. They've just you know, betrayed our trust. Now, I don't know what happened. What did they do? Did they steal your car or something? And she said, no, they've started working with another company and they make more money with the other company. I'm thinking, wait, that's capitalism. That's what you'd expect them to do. Your products are not selling. They're working with someone else whose products are selling. What do you think the investors of that distributor would do if they turn down a more profitable product and work with a less profitable product? It's that mindset shift. The perfect example of what you gave. Yeah, it's a, it is. It's the perfect example. So it happens very often, right? What advice do you have for allowing people to see things for what it is in a constructive way? And then maybe we can segue into those questions you had. I, th I think we can segue from here. So I have two answers to that question. Um, the first is, well, now I started thinking of them both, so I have to work backwards here. The first is, it's a, it's a mathematical concept that I've repurposed, which again sure. is, is a bit ironic because I'm certainly not a mathematician. <laughs> but it's to ask, am I the lowest common denominator? So if I am having conversations with multiple otherwise unrelated groups of people, and I tend to run into the same obstacles, the same roadblocks, the same stressors, the, the same impediments to productivity, if I am the only common link between these groups, then I clearly have to be communicating in a way that is creating these problems. And when yes. especially CEOs fall into the entitlement trap, it's, it is so easy, and it's, it's also easy to understand how this happens. It's so easy for somebody to think, I'm the smartest woman or the smartest man in the room I have in my whole life, that's why I'm here. So if somebody else isn't getting what I'm trying to accomplish, it has to be their fault, it can't be mine. I don't say that with any sarcasm or disrespect. Yes. It is very easy to fall into that mindset. Yet it is that exact mindset that stops us 
from making the shift that we need to. So one of the things is to ask, who's the, am I the lowest common denominator? The second ties into potentially the single most valuable lesson I learned from my career in interrogation. It's completely acceptable for people to lie to me. And not take it personally. Yes. And it's so, not about you if they lie about it. Thank you. And that's the piece that so many people miss. I clearly remember teaching a, an interrogation seminar for a large audience of federal agents here in the United States. And I was showing a video of an interrogation and they lit, I, when I paused it for a teaching point, they cut me off and said, I would be so mad if I was you right now because that guy is obviously lying. And I turned around and was like, why? Why would you be mad? Because he's lying. He needs me to tell the truth. Well, let's pause there for a second. Does he need to tell you the truth? No. Or does he need to protect himself? Everyone is trying to protect themselves. 100%. Some do so, it more aggressively than others. True. And, and there's other lines that certainly can yes. be crossed. Generally, when somebody lies to us, they're not lying to hurt us. It has nothing to do with us. They don't even care about you. No. They're lying to protect themselves. They yeah. are lying to exercise what they believe is their last good option. And I can't fault them for that. Congratulations. At least now I know I have somebody with a functioning brain sitting in front of me that understands telling the truth right now could have negative consequences. And most of the time when people do lie or withhold or massage or, or put a slant on the truth, there's layers of intelligence within that that help us uncover somebody's emotional state, their fears, their motivations that allow us, it would be like driving through Toronto or New York City and coming up to a roadblock. Well, I can't drive through this roadblock, but I can take a right and two lefts and I can go around this roadblock and keep going in the same direction I was. So it, it's that same mindset. So, and I, I do think that's a good segue in, into what you asked about the preparation questions. All too often, especially the higher up the org chart we go, when we prepare for conversations with people, it can be easy for us to think, okay, why should this person trust me? Why should this person believe me? Why should this person do what I want them to do? And when we think that way, we believe that we're truly considering their perspective to the best of our ability. When what we're actually doing is transposing our perspective yes. onto them our experiences, biases, expectations. So, and again, this was a bit of an aha moment for me at roughly 30,000 feet as I was preparing for an interrogation. And I was preparing to interview a group of people and hopefully interrogate one, which is how it worked, who had the opportunity to steal several firearms. Some federal agents had already interviewed them and they didn't confess. A police detective had already interviewed them and didn't confess. And eight weeks after the police had interviewed them, I had the opportunity to go interview them. And I was literally sitting on the airplane, classic with the pen on the little napkin that they gave me with my drink, starting to scratch out some notes. And I just started laughing. It's like, there is no good reason why any of these people should tell me the truth. The people who are innocent are already burdened with the investigation and they just want it done. And the person that did it is 99% of the way to getting off scot-free. Like they just have to keep their mouth shut for another hour or so and they're fine. And what would almost sound like capitulation was, it, just, it gave me this sense of relief. What and do you I leverage now? I do. And literally from that moment on, I have changed how I prepare for all of my high value conversations. And there's four questions I ask myself. The first one, 
is a direct result of that aha moment on the airplane. And you analyzed it 100% correct. I don't ask myself, why should they? I ask myself, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't my audience commit to what I want them to? And it's not about being fatal or negative or assuming the worst. It's about empathizing to the highest degree possible and thinking to your point about the distributor. Well, why shouldn't they use me? Because they're being more profitable with somebody else. <laughs> that's that's it's fairly obvious when you look at yeah, it that way. That, that's a baseline economic decision, and that's not rocket science. So I start by asking myself, why shouldn't they do what I want them to do? Then after I answer that, I ask myself its sister question. Why haven't they already committed to what I want them to do? That's a good question. And in fairness, the answer to that can fall under one of two categories. One is they didn't know it was an option. I can't blame them for that. Let's be pragmatic. The second is they don't see the value. Yes. So now I have to unpack, okay, where is the value disconnect? Once I answer those two questions, I ask myself the third, which may be the most important of the three. At this point, it might be common for somebody to say to themselves, okay, what do I have to say to Michael to convince him to commit or to believe or to trust or to do? But there's two fatal flaws with that question. If I'm thinking, what do I need to say? Once again, I'm focusing on me, I'm not focusing on you. And if I'm focusing on convincing, I am almost certainly encouraging people to take opposing positions and battle out trade losses until somebody finally gives in. So instead we ask ourselves this, what does my audience need to experience before choosing to commit to what I need them to? And by focusing on the audience's experience, now we can look at how much time do we need? How many different conversations? How many different modalities? What information or educational opportunities should they be presented with in what order? Who would be the best representatives from our organization? Where would be the best place to have this conversation, the best time to have this conversation? Now we start to increase our situational awareness because we're taking responsibility for how our audience perceives our interaction in order to drive to the goals we're looking to achieve. Once we unpack that question, the final question I love to ask is, okay, what are our goals and how is everything we say and do going to help us achieve those goals? And those are generally the four question framework that we go through to prepare for all of our high stakes conversations. I like that. It's simple, which is why it works. And it's also puts the burden on you. And I like the example used of people like to say, convince me. It's, all, it's automatically confrontational. Yes. When someone says, convince me of this, they've automatically decided this is going to be an argument. Mm-hmm. And it often becomes an argument. When I work with CEOs and so on on strategy, they always ask me, how do I make a strategy decision? It's so difficult with value chain analysis. I always tell them, just three things you have to know. Find out what your customers need. Go and get it. Give it to them. (laughs) It's not more complicated than that. It's paraphrasing what you're actually saying. Sure. And people make things very complicated. They make business, they make relationships too complicated. It's very simple. Know what the person needs. Get it. Give it to them. Price it in a way both parties are satisfied with it. And life can become a lot more easier. But what happens is we get caught in our head 
thinking about how will I look when I do this? Yes. How do I make sure that I get the most and they get the least? Yes. Not, not about how do we both make a lot of money here. There's a very good example of it. I was working with a family office, a very wealthy family from Latin America. They took their money, put it into an investment vehicle called a family office. And I was talking to the uh, patriarch and he was telling me they will only do business with people that are good. And I'm thinking that you're never going to do business with anyone because people are not good or bad. At a certain time, if your interests are not aligned, it looks like they are bad. But if your interests are aligned, you can trust them because you both want the same outcome. But to presuppose someone is good or bad is not a way to do business, right? So that's an example of changing the mindset. Yes. Late last year, I was here in the United States conducting a session for a group of CEOs, one of these CEO peer groups. Yes. And the gentleman, at one point in the presentation, the gentleman who led the group stood up and asked the question, which I'm summarizing again, but essentially said that as a speaking for everybody in that group, that they work very hard to hire people who have the same moral and ethical code that they do. So in turn, when they have somebody within their organization who has a performance issue or a trust issue or an integrity yeah. issue, they know they need to remove that person because that person clearly doesn't have the same moral and ethical code. And I had to pick my jaw up off the floor, yes. Yes. reaffix it, and try not to say anything that would inadvertently humiliate the man who was paying me to educate his members. And so, but what we worked on, again, is falling prey to validating our expectations. If we set an expectation that you know, A equals B, somebody isn't productive, they made a decision we don't agree with, well, then they're not ethically aligned with us, they need to go from the organization. Then we're literally jumping from one to a hundred without stopping to acknowledge 99 other potential reasons along the way. Yes. Were they misinformed? Did they have great intentions and just didn't make the right choice? Were they having a bad day? Are they going through a divorce? If this was a customer interaction, was the customer just turning the screws on them for months? So they finally reacted in a way because of how they felt emotionally. There could be any number of pretty acceptable reasons why a good person might say or do something that we may feel isn't in alignment with our approach before we just decide that they don't have the same moral or ethical construct that we do. So it turned into a productive conversation and hopefully we did alter somebody or alter the group's perspective a little bit. But I believe that's another example where, you know, when we're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And sometimes it's very important to take a step back and take in the totality of circumstances as we're determining how we react and the decisions we make. That's a very good example because it allows me to segue into a point I wanted to make earlier. Oftentimes, when we are sitting and making a decision, we assume that we don't understand something and given the time we will understand it and we can either agree or disagree with someone. But what I've seen in business happening in waves is that you get a generational shift occurring whereby a 70 year old leader it's not that he's can understand what the 30 year old leader is saying he's never going to understand it because the values are fundamentally different and if you go with that mindset whereby you think that 
if I understand it, we can do it, you're setting yourself up for a trap because the younger generation thinks in a different way. And I've seen this happen so many times in boardrooms whereby you get the young guns, EVPs coming in with new ideas, the CEO doesn't get it. And I've got to counsel the CEO saying, okay, how much of this is happening because there's a generational shift taking place? And if you view it in that way, maybe you've got to let this guy try it. You may not get it, but give him a pilot to run, see what happens. And I think that often happens when we have these discussions whereby we think that if we don't understand it, it's the fault of the person communicating. Maybe just from a values perspective, we're never going to get it. I mean, I don't get the idea of people who like to Airbnb properties because I just can't imagine someone in my house. I just will never, ever understand that and accept it. And that's a generational thing. You can never explain it to me because it's a value that I have whereby I want to own everything that I have, right? And if I'm sitting there and I'm, even if I was on the board of a company who could invest in Airbnb and I'm thinking, well, this doesn't make any sense to me, how much would I have lost out on? So I think when we think about communication and so on, was always remember sometimes you're just not going to get things. Mm-hmm. And you got to know when you have to pull yourself aside and let someone pilot it and test it and so on. I think that's a very important point as we think about communication. I agree. Fantastic. So, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. This is one of the best podcasts we've done. I liked it immensely because I've never seen someone almost apply a set of standards to conversations before. I do have one question before we wrap up. It's a very important question. Why would someone come clean about committing a crime? Yeah. It's a, well, if you're watching the shows, you're probably not seeing the best techniques. Yes. <laughs> We're seeing the techniques that create the most drama and entertainment yeah. for television, yes. for Hollywood purposes. Um, generally speaking, people will come clean for several reasons. The easiest in, in my career, the one I wished happened way more often than it did, is because they literally feel guilty and they have an opportunity to get it off their chest. And so they do. And that does happen. It, I wish it happened a lot more often. It does yes. happen. The next is people believe it's easier for people to tell the truth when they believe that the truth is either already known or will certainly be known. Okay. The third is a combination of having the opportunity to save face and protect their self-image and put their own spin on it. This is actually what I biasly believe to be an enormous concept for CEOs and senior leaders. All too often at the highest leadership levels, when we ask somebody a question and we believe that we get an excuse for why something did or didn't happen, it drives us crazy. And our initial reaction is often direct to accountability. Don't, I don't wanna hear excuses. Everyone needs to take accountability for their actions. Where are we right now? What we often fail to realize is that when the time that's all come full circle, all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, when somebody gives us an excuse, that is the result of their internal negotiation. They say to themselves, okay, I'm going to have to say something about this. Yes. But I have to do it in a way that helps me save face and protects my self-image. So I'm going to give an excuse. And what happens, I'm not brave enough to put a percentage on it, but it probably would start with a nine. What happens far too often is that leaders, because they're, they're focused on time or accountability or their self-image, you know, don't, don't mislead the leader, they immediately attack the excuse. 
as opposed to realizing that the excuse, to use an interrogation analogy, is a tacit admission. Yes. They're admitting there's a problem. They're just softening the edges of the problem. Yeah. But what we really wanted was them to fall on the sword in front of us because that's what we're entitled to. So because they didn't do that, we become upset. Where what we really should be doing in those situations is accepting the excuse. That doesn't mean agree with it, just yeah. accept it. Because often when people give us an excuse, they have their defenses ready. They expect us to attack it. They're prepared for that. It's what they're anticipating. But if they give us an excuse and we pause for a second and say, you know, thank you. That's a good place to start. Please walk me through that. Now, it's a completely unexpected answer. Yes. Their defensiveness goes away and they're forced to unpack an excuse that they may have just made up off the top of their head. Yes. So we're literally starting the conversation where they want to start it to get to the end that we need in a way that allows them to save face, protect their self-image, feel respected, and own a larger degree of the idea ownership, which leads to commitment over compliance and a large, stronger likelihood that the problem gets resolved moving forward. So it can be very easy for leaders to become extremely upset with excuses. And I get it. However, when we do that, we are often literally throwing away the absolute path we need to take to resolve the problem. We're trying to force somebody down our road yes. as opposed to taking them down the road. They want to go to the resolution we need to create. I appreciate you giving me a little bit extra time to walk through that. Oh, no, it's very interesting. I wish that uh, more people had the skill, applied the skill and so on. It's this classic example I see with some married couples whereby they want someone to do something the way they want it. And just mm -hmm. for the sake of getting it done, no one's happy after it's done. And I don't understand what is the overall game plan? What's the end game here? Yeah. I feel better. As a general rule for business conversations, if we ever find ourselves saying, I shouldn't have to do that, first stop and congratulate yourself because you're probably right. You shouldn't have to. And then go do it because that's almost certainly the correct course of action to achieve the goal that we're looking for. And when our egos come into play, when that need to be right, when that need to win, even if it's really a loss comes into play, we force ourselves down that road. Yeah, that's very good advice. Oftentimes we have a view of how things should pan out. If it doesn't meet that viewpoint, we get upset, we get angry, mm -hmm. we think there's something wrong with us. Why am I suffering more than other people? But that's because we compare the perfect images people create of themselves, not comparing the reality of what's there. Yes. And that's where we get, it's like the old Instagram generation. You know, you look yes. at this and you say, oh my God, why am I not in Cyprus today, drinking cocktails on the beach and getting some strangers to take photographs of me? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what happens to people, right? Yeah. Michael, thank you so much. That was amazing. I'm sure our audience is going to love it. We'll be in touch. And I'm sure we'll do more work together. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.